Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 4 of Teacher Ollie's Takeaways. Recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people, this is the podcast in which I summarise my key takeaways from Twitter, blogs, research papers, conversations and even my own classroom from the week just past. In this episode I talk about three main topics. The first is Cognitive Load Theory by John Sweller. The second is using question stems in the classroom. And the third is some reflections on a recent symposium I went to entitled, What Would It Take to Fix Education in Australia? Let's get started. This first point was prompted by a tweet from Dylan William. Uh, On January 26th, Dylan William said, in no uncertain terms, I've come to the conclusion Sweller's cognitive load theory is the single most important thing for teachers to know. <laughs> that is a pretty big claim, the single most important thing for teachers to know. And, you know, rightly so, I thought, well, I should probably know what on earth Sweller's cognitive load theory was or, or is. As a result, I checked out some of uh, Dylan Williams' other posts and he had linked, uh, and actually Greg Ashman's blog post uh, hinted at this, he had linked to an article by this researcher called John Sweller, and the article was called Story of a Research Program. Uh, and this article basically details Sweller's involvement in his development of cognitive load theory, and it starts in a really quite interesting biographical uh, context or style. So John Sweller starts out, I was born in 1946 in Poland to parents who, apart from my older sister, were their family's sole survivors of the Holocaust. He then moves on with some touches of a bit more dry humour. At school I began as a mediocre student who slowly deteriorated to the status of a very poor student by the time I arrived at the University of Adelaide. Initially I enrolled in an undergraduate dentistry course but never managed to advance beyond the first year. While I'm sure that was a relief to the dental faculty, it also should be a relief to the Australian dental patients. Given the physical proximity of teeth and brain, I decided next to try my luck at psychology. It was a good choice because my grades immediately shot up from appalling back to mediocre, where they had been earlier in my academic career. I decided I want to be an academic. The reason why I just share that first passage is because I think it it bridges a gap that's often present in education research. It's the narrative. And the narrative carries right through this piece by John Swiller and in a way that makes it really easy uh, to get through despite some of the heavy kind of technical terms. So I thought I'd use today's podcast to um, to touch on some of John Sweller's theories in relation to cognitive load theory, and and to leave, but to leave a little bit for some future episodes of Teach Ollie's Takeaways as well. Sweller eventually ended up at the University of New South Wales, and he details a seminal experiment that led to his thinking, uh, led to his thinking starting around cognitive uh, load theory. Sweller says. After several nondescript experiments, I saw some results that I thought might be important. I, along with research student Bob Moore and Wally Howe, was running an experiment on problem solving, testing undergraduate students. The problems required students to transform a given number into a goal number, where the only two moves allowed were multiplying by 3 or subtracting 29. Each problem only had one possible solution, and that solution in all cases, required an alternation of multiplying by 3 and subtracting by 29 a specific number of times. So like times 3, subtract 29, times 3, subtract 29. For example, given a goal number might require a two-step solution. 
an iteration of this process. And he goes on, My undergraduates found these problems relatively easy to solve, with very few failures, but there was something strange about their solutions. While all problems had to be solved by this alternative sequence, very few students discovered the rule that is, the solution sequence of alternating the two possible moves. Whatever the problem solvers were doing to solve the problems, learning the alternating solution sequence rule did not play a part. I can see why to John this was a surprising result because the solution sequence of the solution pattern, the generalization was actually super simple in this case. In all cases, it was just an alternation between multiplying by 3 or subtracting, or subtracting by 29. How could these students not have realized this? John says, cognitive load theory probably can be traced back to that experiment. But for John, this was an isolated case. Sweller needed to demonstrate it in an educational context. Who's to say that not being able to generalize from this small problem means has uh, ramifications for the way we should be teaching? So research was taken into the fields of maths and physics education. Turns out it did indeed show the effect. I'll talk briefly about some of the cognitive load effects in education and we'll save some more for the next two or three episodes, as mentioned before. So one of the effects was the goal-free effect. And this is uh, an effect that's maybe the second best known of the cognitive load effects. Here's a quote from the paper. If working memory during problem solving was overloaded by attempts to reach the problem goal, thus preventing learning, then eliminating the problem goal might allow working memory resources to be directed to learning more useful combinations rather than searching for a goal. That was an incredibly long sentence. It went for about four lines, so I'll break it down a little bit. Essentially, Sweller uh, came across some research from some other researchers uh, by the names of Newell and Simon at Carnegie Mellon University. And Newell and Simon had been trying to break down how it is that humans solve problems. And they came up with this term for the way that we solve problems, and they termed it the means-end strategy. And the means-end strategy is essentially, as humans, we, we work out where we are, and we work out means to bridge the gap. The challenge is, uh, as Sweller outlines, is that this requires an incredible amount of working memory. I won't go into too much uh, detail about working memory now. I'm hoping that most listeners are familiar with the, the, the idea of working, of working memory or limited working memory for people. Anyway, this means-ends analysis problem-solving process takes up a lot of working memory because it requires problem solvers to process in working memory all of the information concerning problem states and problem operations simultaneously. That's a quote out of the, the paper. John says... I figure that since it was well known that working memory is very limited in capacity and duration, it is likely that when means-end strategy was used, nothing else can be considered. So essentially, the problem solvers' brains are being filled with analysing where they're trying to get to, where they are, and how, how the hell to get there. They're so full that they can't actually notice the subtleties and the patterns and the generalisations that exist within the problem that they're trying to solve while they're doing it. So this led to this thing called the goal-free effect. So the goal-free effect is essentially this. If working memory during problem-solving was overloaded by attempts to reach the problem goal, thus preventing learning, then eliminating the problem goal might allow working memory resources to be directed to learning more useful combinations rather than searching for a goal. W what does this mean? Well, John Sweller suggests that rather than asking learners to, quote, find angle X in geometry problem, it might be better to ask them, find the value of as many angles as possible. 
Now, at this point, I'm kind of scratching my head because I'm not quite sure how asking a question like that would help students to recognize patterns. Um, there was a good post on this this week, or a good tweet that mentioned a post. The tweet was by Dylan William, and, and the post was by Michael Pershing. And it's on applying Sweller's cognitive load theory to maths instruction. And in that image, uh, Michael Pershing gives an example of a question he's used in his own class. And he also shows a picture of this original image related to the find as many angles as you can from the Sweller, Mawar and Ward article from all the way back in 1983. Anyway, I'm still not sold on this. I mean, obviously, it's the most one of the most important things that we need to know as teachers. But... I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. So this goal-free effect, I'd love to explore more how, how it can work in more contexts by taking away the goal and letting students choose their own goals will open up working memory for students to be able to see more patterns in mathematics and more broadly. Another effect of cognitive load theory that I found more easy to digest was the worked example effect. So the worked example effect essentially argues that learners who study worked examples perform better on test problems than learners who solve the same problems themselves. This is because when you give students worked examples, and this one makes a lot of sense to me, you're not asking them to do all the steps themselves. What you can do is you can give them, you're essentially scaffolding them to understand exactly what's going on in this problem. And instead of them getting them to integrate and coordinate multiple facets of the problem-solving process. Here I'm thinking about some high-level maths or something where students have to draw on many different concepts. You're kind of padding out and supporting and scaffolding them along the path so they can focus on the things that are really new to them. Perhaps one way to do this would be to show they're working and miss out one line of working to draw students to that specific section. The final cognitive load theory effect that I wanted to talk about today that I came across was the split attention effect. Uh, and the split attention is effect is basically talking about the cognitive load that it places on the students when we have two pieces of information separated spatially and in order to solve a problem or answer a question, the student has to then resolve or bring together those two spatially uh, separated elements. I think in the past I've heard this also referred to as the spatial contiguity effect. But then again, I don't know if I'm pronouncing contiguity correctly. Sweller said that they found this particularly in questions like geometry in which the instruction would be find angle ABC. So the actual instruction is separate from the diagram and the student has to is initially using a component of their working memory to connect the words to the diagram. And following that, then they can start solving the problem. And Sweller suggests that, well, if you want the student to just focus on solving the problem, you should just put the arrow on the diagram and say, find this angle. That is, if you're not attempting to uh, play into the goal-free effect at that same time. So yeah, a little bit of an intro into Sweller's cognitive load theory. I think I'm going to re-read the article. It's a lot to take on in a first go, but something I'd love to explore more in future. The second thing I wanted to talk about today was using question stems in the classroom. I think last week I mentioned that this week I'd hope, I hope to share something from the classroom and it, was, it has indeed been my first week uh, back. And I was teaching Year 11 Physics this week and I, I was trying to convey to students the idea of conduction. So what I had was up on the board I showed a video and it was a video of a glass rod 
and the glass rod had molecules in it and one end of it was being heated by fire and we looked at the interaction between the molecules and how the heat traveled along the, the glass rod and increased the temperature of that rod as it moved along it and as time went on. I showed the video and there were kind of a few blank faces and I said, kind of, you know, does that, did everyone understand that? Are there any questions following that? And, and students were just looking at me and I thought, I thought there's got to be some questions. I can see it in their eyes. But I wasn't sure how to elicit these questions from the students. And then I had a vague memory of a blog post from Jennifer Gonzalez. Uh, I later tweeted to Jennifer at Cold of Pedagogy and asked her what the blog post was. And she, she shared it with me. And it's apparently, it's called, Is Your Classroom Academically Safe? Anyway, I remember from this article that she'd proposed using question stems to scaffold student question asking, which to me was a really novel idea at the time. And it just acknowledges the fact that students don't know how to ask questions in a lot of contexts. So the question stems that Gonzalez suggests were things like, this is what I do understand, and then get them to summarize up to the point of misunderstanding. Another one was, can you tell me if I've got this right? Similarly, similar to the first one. The third one was, can you please show another example? Very simple, easy to apply. The fourth was, can you explain that one more time? And the fifth is, is it blank or blank in terms of identifying a point of confusion between two possibilities. So I was in the physics class and I had this this vague recollection of this in my in my head and I thought I can use this. So I just on the fly I was thinking how what question stems can I come up with and I and these are the ones that I came up with. I said maybe you want to ask a question something like what is blank in the diagram? Is there something you don't understand in the diagram? You might want to ask Am I right in thinking that blank? You might want to ask, what's the difference between something and something else? And following this, a student put up their hand. This is a student from a language background other than English, and they said, oh, yes, sir, um, what is glass rod? Light bulb moment. I just thought that that was a nice little <laughs> vignette from the classroom that for me was really powerful. And I really will be using more question stems in future. Finally and briefly, if this can be a brief topic, what would it take to fix education in Australia? So last night I went to a symposium at, again at uh, Melbourne Graduate School of Education and it was entitled this question. Um, and it was essentially in a symposium about and as an opportunity to discuss some of the topics in a recent, recently released book called Educating Australia, Challenges for Decades Ahead that was edited by Tom Bentley and Glenn Savage. Uh, it was a really wide-ranging discussion and I actually wrote a, a blog post about it that I will link to in the show notes. But there were just two things that I wanted to talk about from it. A lot of it was stuff we've heard, heard about before in education. It's things like uh, determining where students are, where, they need, where they're trying to get to and trying to support them to get there. Things like looking at curriculum as a map rather than a list or uh, mastery kind of teaching rather than putting students in class levels, something that may or may not work given the context. There was discussion about the diversity of Australian society and how that must be reflected in education and education systems, which I thought was an important point. But I just wanted to share two things from the closing that were really interesting to me. So Larissa made, uh, this was Larissa McLean Davis, she made an interesting point on the role of literacy. 
Uh, following up on a question, question from Maxine McHugh on the inclusion of Australian literature in Australian schools, she suggested that the literature studied in schools must represent the diversity of our Australian society. She said that if we don't do this, then we're effectively saying to vast swathes of our society, you do not have a place here. I thought that was really powerful. The only other thing I wanted to share from that one was Glenn Savage, uh, in his closing comments, mentioned that there's a misalignment between the locus of policymaking and the locus of accountability in Australia. So we've increasingly got federal bodies making decisions that have implications for education right across the country, uh, that being the locus of policymaking, whereas the accountability to the impacts of those decisions actually falls not at the federal level but at the state level, uh, which essentially is the locus of effect, or should I say the locus of accountability two new kind of concepts that I'd come across uh, and the divide as Glenn described it was new to me as well so fundamentally this is a broken feedback loop that's the the education analogy that I, I placed onto it or I overlaid on it that determines that undermines improvements and accountability right throughout the system the conversation was very very uh, kind of high level I guess the room wasn't filled with teachers, not that that's necessarily a bad thing, but while I was sitting there and I was ref reflecting on the couple of days that I just taught for and the days days ahead that I was going to be teaching in, I was thinking, this is all great, but at the same time as we're having all these conversations, there are still students, thousands and thousands of students in you know over 6,000 public schools in Australia who are being taught today and tomorrow and the next day. How does this impact us now and how, even if we can agree upon uh, the role of education in Australian society or the way that the curricula should be structured, how do we get there? And I remembered a quote that I heard a couple of years ago that really stuck with me and that quote was, if you change what happens in your classroom, you are changing the education system. For me, this is one of the most encouraging messages that I've ever heard about teaching. There was a time when I didn't feel comfortable. It was actually before I was a teacher. But there was a time that I didn't feel comfortable saying, I'm training to be a teacher. I would have to, feel, I felt like I, given the low status of the profession, I felt like I had to add some sort of caveat, like I'm training to be a teacher, but you know, I'd like to get into curriculum design eventually, or uh, I'm training to be a teacher, but I think one day I'll probably go into, you know, their department of education or something like that. The more and more I teach, the more I realize that actually by being in the classroom by spending time with students we have so much power and privilege and responsibility in terms of shaping the next generation and as i said we are changing the education system every time we teach in a way that fundamentally respects the students that we teach and supports their learning to the fullest That's all I wanted to say in Teach Ollie's Takeaways this week. Hope you enjoyed it. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources I mentioned, including the very intriguing and engaging article by John Sweller uh, at www.ollielovell.com forward slash podcast. And if you did enjoy this week's episode, as always, please write a review on iTunes to help more people to find the podcast. Uh, if you have any thoughts, reflections, or arguments in regard to this week's podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, get in touch with me via Twitter. You can find me at Ollie underscore Lovell. And if you have any ideas for more question stems for students, 
in particular, I'd love to hear them as well as hearing about any more articles that are going to help me get my head around how on earth to make this goal-free effect thing work in my classroom. Thanks for your time. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.